Welcome to the NAN Scholars and Diagnostic Excellent Expert Introduction Podcast. Today, we're talking about the role of technology in the diagnostic process. My name is Trevor Jardina, and I'll be hosting this episode. I'm a patient safety researcher and a social worker by training. My research focuses on learning from patients' experiences of diagnostic errors, and I'm particularly interested in the role of patient-facing technology in diagnostic safety. I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Robert Wachter. Dr. Wachter is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He has written two books on safety and quality, including Understanding Patient Safety, the world's top-selling safety primer, and one of my own first exposures to patient safety, and also The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm in the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age, which was a New York Times science bestseller. Dr. Wachter is also very active on Twitter, actively dispelling COVID disinformation. His tweets on COVID-19 have been viewed by over 400 million times, and he has served as a trusted source of information on the clinical, public health, and policy issues surrounding the pandemic. Dr. Wachter, thank you for joining. I'm excited to talk to you today about the role of technology in the diagnostic process. It's great to be with you, Trevor. You can call me Bob. It's a nice opportunity. It's such an interesting issue as we think about the confluence between patient safety and technology, a huge issue. Yes, definitely. Okay, great. So we'll go ahead and get started. Can you give me a little bit of background about yourself and your career? Sure. I'm pretty old, so it could take a while, so I'll go quickly. So I tell people I'm what happens when a political science major becomes an academic physician. So growing up, I was always, I grew up uh, during Watergate, so I got very interested in politics and policy and history. But I kind of knew I wanted to be a doctor, and so I thought those would be two separate threads in my life, and they've kind of morphed together. So my career has really focused on the impact of the healthcare system on the way we take care of patients. And that, as a general theme, has led me to study the organization of hospital care. I coined the term hospitalist and was in the middle of the emergence of that very big specialty. I was very interested at one point in activism, largely through working in AIDS and HIV, the role of patient and patient-facing communities and moving the healthcare system. And then spent probably 15 to 20 years focusing a lot on patient safety and quality. When the Institute of Medicine report on patient safety came out, I read that and I said, wow, that's just mind-blowing and felt very real and felt very important. So I spent a lot of time on that. For the last seven or eight years, I've kind of pivoted to thinking a lot about the role of technology. My own belief is that we're on the cusp of a massive transformation in healthcare that I think will mostly be for the better, but will be incredibly complicated with lots of unanticipated consequences. But it will leave healthcare looking very different than it looks now. And for the last two years, it's been all COVID all the time with me not being a super expert in any part of COVID, but being someone who's pretty good at seeing the big picture. So looking across the domains of epidemiology and public health and virology and vaccinology and the law and politics and policy. So those are the themes. And then underlying all of it, I tend to have some fairly large administrative and leadership roles. So my main day job, the one they actually pay me for, is to run the Department of Medicine at UCSF, which is about a thousand physicians a really magnificent department. It gives me a pretty bird's eye view of the healthcare system from the standpoint of a large academic medical center. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. I think it's really helpful for folks just starting out or wanting to move into patient safety to kind of be exposed to the path of sort of the leaders in the field. I think sometimes we assume it's sort of a straight shot and it doesn't always look that way. Well, it's absolutely never, it's almost never a straight shot. When I talk to people who 
have, quote, made it in their career in medicine. I don't think I've ever met anyone who knew what they wanted to do when they were 20 and just did that as a straight shot. It's a lot of serendipity. It's a lot of taking chances. It's a lot of finding an individual that you think is doing something cool and working with him or her and, you know, and moving in a different direction. It's a lot of looking at emerging issues and seeing what seems interesting and important. Yeah, definitely. So I do want to switch gears just a little and go back to COVID. Talk a little bit about the pandemic. It's been really hard on the medical community, as of course, you know, running such a huge department. Is there anything that you learned about yourself that surprised you or did you discover, you know, a hidden strength throughout the past couple of years? I don't know if a hidden strength. I've always, really for the past 20 or 30 years, I've recognized that a strength and an interest of mine is looking at big cross-cutting issues that people care deeply about and have often have political dimensions and trying to understand them from multiple domains, synthesize them, feel like I think I've got it in my own brain, and then communicate it out in ways that people find useful. It's an interesting and odd strength because I'm a true generalist. I'm sort of wired that way. My clinical field is I'm a general internist and a hospitalist. And what I tell people who are thinking about that field as a clinical field is that you've got to be comfortable. When I admit any patient in the hospital to my service, I can almost automatically name five people in the building right now who know more about each of their problems than I do. They have a kidney problem. They have a liver problem. They have a heart problem. And we have specialists in those things. And what I feel good about is that I know more about the whole thing, the big picture, than they do. And the world really works best if you have both of those types of people, very narrow domain experts and broader synthesizers across domains. I like being the synthesizer because I kind of like being broad, first of all, and I like learning. And my ego is large enough, but not that large that I feel bad about not knowing stuff. I, I always don't know stuff and I'm always learning things from colleagues. And that was true in COVID, and that was true in patient safety, where as soon as I dove into the patient safety field, I realized I needed to learn about aviation safety, and I had to learn about human factors, and I needed to learn about computing and digital transformation. So I think COVID was a version of the same thing. What I guess I've learned is how particularly valuable that is in a moment where everybody is massively anxious, and it's the most important issue in the world and it's being politicized, and there's misinformation that people will, whether they're in professional environments, like for my department, or non-professional environments, like the public communication I do, it's just a swirl of confusion. And if you are a lay person, not only do you not understand kind of how viruses work or how the immune system works, but you really don't understand medical research and how that works. You know, what it means to be a preprint, what a p-value means, what a number needed to treat is, all of this stuff that we just throw around because we're used to it, we sort of forget the amount of training that we had in order to be facile with those terms. So I kind of learned early in COVID that there probably was going to be a role for people who sort of pulled together all the threads, read broadly across domains, and synthesized it. And more than that, not only just sort of said, here's what I think is going on, but actually took a step that is fairly hard, which is, here's what I'm thinking about it, and here's what I personally am doing about it. doesn't mean you need to do this, but if you are a lay person and you're trying to figure out, like, do I wear a mask here? Do I get a third shot? Should I travel? You know, all those sort of things. I kind of decided early on that rather than being the neutral, passive professional that I was really trained to be, 
I felt like that would be a disservice that if I would say to people, and here's how I synthesize all this literature and new research, and it's coming at you every two hours, and I am going to go visit my father who's dying in Florida. And here's why. Here's how I weigh the risks and benefits. Uh, here's how I'm going to act as safely as I can. I just had a lot of people say to me, you know, I kind of given up on trying to understand all this. You just tell me what you're doing and that's what I'll do. And I don't think that's unreasonable. So becoming a little bit more comfortable with pulling down the professional mask and being pretty real and authentic to people. I kind of always knew that had value, but in COVID, it's been, I think, extraordinarily important for some of the folks that do scientific communication to be willing to cross over what otherwise, what in the past would have been a very hard line. It would have been like, you're a reasonably prominent academic position. You don't do that. That's too personal. And what are you doing on Twitter and not publishing in JAMA? I've decided all those lines are fake and really aren't relevant to today's world, where I think part of our job is to communicate to the public in ways that help them live their lives better. And, and so whatever method you can use to do that seems to me to be a positive thing. I definitely have to thank you for your service on Twitter. I do think you have sort of a unique gift of mixing the personal experience with the science in a way that helps the lay person understand and make decisions and also modeling for other scientists is really important. It's important work. Oh, thank you. So before we jump into the topic, which is technology and diagnostic safety, can you talk a little bit about the history of the digitization of healthcare? Sort of how did we get to where we are today as far as the role of tech in healthcare? Yeah, so I'll try to <laughs> synthesize a 300-page book I wrote in two minutes. It's a, it's a tricky topic, but let me, let me sort no of pressure. do a pretty big picture view. Healthcare is really all about data, if you think about it. It's the data we collect when we talk to a patient. It's the data we collect when we do a physical exam. It's the data you read when you pick up the New England Journal of Medicine. It is the data we get from a lab test or an x-ray, and it's the synthesis of that data, the analysis of that data that then allows us to make a diagnosis, figure out a prognosis, figure out what the best treatment or other recommendations are to a given patient. And it's the data then that we use to study and see how we did, how that patient did, how the system is doing. So you would think that healthcare would have been first in line to embrace a set of technologies that basically have transformed the way we collect and use data, namely digitization. And yet we were probably last of major industries in terms of when we digitize the industry and how well we use digital data to improve the way we do our work. A lot of reasons for that. Healthcare is big and broadly distributed and complicated. And you know it's not like an industry like banking where there are five major players. The data, it comes from a thousand different places and it's really, it's complicated. And the business interests are oddly distributed as well. So in most industries, if you're travel or retail or, or whatever, as a vendor, as United Airlines or the Bank of America or Fidelity or Walmart, it's pretty clear kind of what the transaction is. You're selling something to people. And if you can figure out a way of selling that thing or delivering a service that creates a better customer experience at a lower cost, you're going to do it. And even though it's disruptive to change from one way of doing work to another, you do it. And what we've learned from other industries is after you do it and the core business goes from analog to digital, you now have the opportunity for massive transformation of the way you do the entire thing, often with new entrants coming in that are really good at doing this thing digitally. 
supplanting the old legacy leading companies that were not very good at doing things digitally. They were good at doing things analog. So I think that's the path that healthcare will take. Every industry takes it. The only industry that's a little bit even behind us is probably education, but otherwise every industry has gone through this path. We've seen what it looks like for the industry to turn upside down. So healthcare was late to the dance because it's complicated and healthcare insurance makes the transaction much more complicated and the incentives much more complicated than other industries. There are multiple players. So to my mind, we need to digitize because I think it holds great promise in improving quality, safety, patient experience, value, lowering the cost. It actually is very exciting to me that new entrants are almost certainly going to come in and have new ways of doing things different than the legacy systems and providers. But it's all pretty new for us. I mean, we really only digitize the data, by which I mostly mean electronic health records, about eight, 10 years ago. And so the last 10 years have been basically the first stage, which is, okay, the data are now being collected in digital form. That gives us the opportunity to understand it in new ways use it in new ways and build systems, some of which will be digital, some of which won't, to make care better and safer and cheaper and more accessible and more equitable. But we're really just starting on that journey. And one of the things we've learned from the electronic health record is it's massively complicated. And I say that in part because if you ask physicians, and I wouldn't be surprised if social workers or nurses would say the same thing, what is the bane of your existence? Most of them will say, my digital world is now the bane of my existence, which is pretty amazing. And why? Because of unanticipated consequences, because physicians and nurses really are spending so much time documenting that they don't have time to look at a patient, or because they spend all this time documenting and get so little useful insight out of the computer. It's like you have a baby and you spend all your time feeding and changing the baby, but the baby never smiles at you. Or, you know, my physicians now are underwater with their digital inboxes. So we've given patients all this information. They're now seeing their record. They see a cardiogram that says abnormal. They see a magnesium that's high. And of course, quite logically, they email their physician saying, what does this mean? So the physicians are underwater trying to deal with all that. So lots of forces. I think we're, it's relatively new, but we've only just begun the process of transformation. The main thing we've done so far is digitize the record, which is foundational, but it doesn't get us to where we need to be. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful and interesting for the fellows. I think that'll help contextualize kind of the larger role of tech and give a good starting point for our session all together with the fellows. So thank you. I really appreciate that. So thinking back a little bit on your career, when did you know that you wanted to think more deeply or actually impact or affect change related to technology and diagnosis in healthcare? Two different stages. My interest in patient safety really started in 1999 after the Institute of Medicine report on medical errors came out. And I read it and it was sort of like a veil over my eyes was lifted. I just said, wow, you know, this is so right. I mean, people who are younger and have entered medicine in the last 20 years don't realize there was a before. And the before was we just thought of medical mistakes as just the natural consequence of doing something complicated. And it just happens. And we also thought a medical mistake was largely the consequence of some person screwing up. And I remember after reading the IOM report, I went out to the award attending at UCSF, and it was like I was wearing a new set of much better glasses. I was seeing things much more clearly. I saw errors everywhere. And I saw incredibly good people working really hard, trying to be safe. And it became clear to me that this must not be about bad people. It really has to be about dysfunctional systems that are really cruelly dysfunctional and cruel not only to the patients, but also to the providers. And so this idea of systems thinking and 
and that it really is not the fault of individuals, it's the fault of a system that doesn't work very well, it became very clear. And then as soon as you start thinking about that, it becomes clear that technology is part of the answer. Start looking at medical mistakes, and you see a mistake because the lesion on the chest x-ray was not transmitted to the primary care doctor when the patient left the hospital, partly because there's only one copy of the chest x-ray. It's a piece of film. It lives in a film library. It's silly. Or the pharmacy makes a prescribing error because they can't read my handwriting, which is natural. My handwriting is terrible. Or a physician writes a prescription for a medicine the patient is allergic to, whereas any normal digital system would block that. It's, it just seemed obvious that technology was part of the answer. But I didn't study technology per se. I really studied patient safety. But then by about 2010, 2012, as hospitals, including my own, began bringing in electronic health records with great hope and great hype, and all of us are used to technologies coming into other parts of our lives and making things better and cheaper. And I mean, whatever you think about Amazon or your iPhone and all that, I think most of us think that it's probably made the world better. Obviously, there are unanticipated consequences and disruption. So I was sort of similarly optimistic about healthcare digital, and I saw digital come in, and I saw it improve things, including getting rid of my handwriting. But I just saw a huge number of unanticipated consequences. Physicians not looking patients in the eye anymore because they're so busy typing, or new kinds of medical mistakes that happened because people were so focused on the computer screen and had turned their brains off. So that really led me to begin thinking about technology as an area I really wanted to focus on. Part of it around the patient safety issues, but a much broader set of issues around the really wholesale transformation of our entire industry. Well, that's actually a really good segue to another question I have, which is a little more specific about your experience. Could you talk a little bit about you and your team's efforts to advance digital health that resulted maybe in improved diagnostic safety or impacted diagnostic safety? Yeah, I don't know that I have done or my team has done anything super specific in diagnostic safety. I think in some ways, my main contributions to diagnostic safety is I may have been one of the first people to identify in an article I wrote in Health Affairs maybe 10 or 12 years ago that diagnostic safety was an area in the patient safety agenda that was not getting enough attention. And I use the old Rodney Dangerfield line, you know, it doesn't get any respect. And it was because of my experience as a clinician and my research on patient safety made clear to me that diagnostic errors were probably the most important patient safety problem. And yet, if you picked up the medical literature, you would not believe that. You would believe that preventing central line infections was a much more important safety problem than diagnostic errors. And this was the old saying about, you know, looking under where the light is. And it was so much easier to measure and study central line infections, medication errors, surgical site infections, urinary infections, maybe even falls. They were kind of discrete events they often related to a pretty easily understandable set of process failures. It was easier to define them, to measure them, and easier to conceptualize and ultimately, in many cases, prove that if you just did these three things or these five things, you could make this patient safety problem better. So quite naturally, that's where the literature gravitated. It's where health systems gravitated. And my concern was First of all, at some level, that's fine. You go for the low-hanging fruit first. Those are the things that are easier. But I think if you came into the safety field or you were a healthcare leader, you might just get the illusion that those are the most important patient safety issues. And there was almost nothing being written about diagnostic errors, in part because they are really, really hard to measure. 
in part because we really don't know, didn't know, and I'd say still probably don't know what it is that we need to do to improve them. And so kind of quite naturally, they kind of gravitated down the list of priorities. I think my epiphany really was, that's not right. We have to try to elevate them. The fact that it's a harder problem means that we got to get cracking on it. I certainly wasn't the only person doing that, but I think my work and others sort of began a movement within the safety field and more generally in healthcare to get the system to pay attention to diagnosis as a really important safety target. I think it helped catalyze the National Academy of Medicine report on diagnostic errors, the formation of the society that's focused on diagnostic errors, the decision of several big funders to start large initiatives in diagnostic excellence, including the Moore Foundation and others, the interest of NAM in, in this program. I think all in some ways were fueled by a recognition that getting the diagnosis right is extraordinarily important, is hard, but the hardness should not be a reason that we shy away from it. It's actually a reason that we should put our shoulder to it and put more attention and resources into figuring it out. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a very important contribution to have the leaders in patient safety say, this is hard work, but it's really important and we need to focus on. And I think just as you say, what sort of follows is sort of the big reports and then the funders, which is what we really, really need and want. So just changing gears a little bit, can you talk about what you think are some of the areas or resources that folks just beginning their study in diagnostic excellence should focus on in terms of technology and healthcare and diagnostic safety? Well, I think the Venn diagram of diagnosis and technology is extraordinarily interesting and will only grow in importance. If you think about what technology does, it allows you to collect uniform data, move it around seamlessly through a large system and analyze it in ways that you just couldn't do when you were using paper. And so if you think about the diagnostic process, let's take it from the standpoint of a physician or any other clinician who's sort of frontline patient facing, they are collecting a massive amount of information, history, physical exam, perhaps lab tests, collateral information from families and, and other sources. They are then applying that information against the templates that they have in their brain that say this set of information is consistent with these three diagnoses. They're then applying those, what we call a differential diagnosis, against their own knowledge and what the literature tells them about the different tests that you can use to become more sure that it's diagnosis A and more sure that it's not diagnoses B and C. They're making a tentative diagnosis. They may begin a treatment or further testing. And then they're following the patient to see that they're responding in a way that one would predict. It should be that all of that gets better with technology. The collection of the information, the ability to map that information against not only what the literature says patients with lupus tend to have, but even a million other patients in the computer system. Computer, at least theoretically, should be able to say, Patients that look like this in terms of history, laboratory studies, physical exam findings, risk factors, uh, turned out to have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or cancer or whatever. The technology to do that is no harder than what Amazon or Netflix do all the time when they say people who like this book or this movie also like that one. And the ability to follow patients over time and match what we have ultimately learned was their real diagnosis to make the system iteratively better over time. That all should work really great. It doesn't. And it doesn't because the data are messy and sometimes slightly fictional because they're in there partly to try to get the best payment from an insurer or to look best on quality measurements. 
because the work we need to do in artificial intelligence and data analytics is still pretty early in this regard. We're not very good at following people over time. People often leave one healthcare system and move into another or have information that is in different buckets of data that don't get pooled very well. So I think there's a lot to do here. But I think for somebody kind of entering the field, I mean, there are things to do in the world of diagnosis that really are very foundational. You know, how do we measure diagnostic errors or diagnostic excellence? Are there practical activities that individual clinicians or health systems can do that demonstrably improve diagnostic excellence? Those are all really important and foundational. But if I was sort of skating to where the puck is going, it really is taking a look at technology and not in a wild-eyed, overly optimistic way that people had 20 or 30 years ago, that the computer is just going to replace the clinician's brain as the diagnostic engine, because I think it's going to be hard to do. But the computer being a really important partner for clinicians, but also for patients to help them sift through all the data that is being collected and suggest possible diagnoses, point out that on your differential diagnosis, you mentioned pulmonary embolism and pericarditis, but you didn't mention pneumonia. And in our, I'm talking as the computer, review the literature, you know, at 12% of people who looked like this or in our database of a million patients, 12% of people that looked like this turned out to have pneumonia. Those are things computers are all capable of. I would highlight one other issue, which to me is one of the more fascinating mega trends in the digitization of medicine. And that is the fact that increasing amounts of diagnosis are going to be done by patients themselves using digital tools. The history of digitization in other industries is that it automatically democratizes the industry. It allows people to do more things themselves aided by computers than they used to and things that in the past they used to have to go see a professional or often a credentialed professional to get done. Now, that was always risky. You know, when I no longer see a financial advisor because I'm doing all of my financial stuff through fidelity.com, or I no longer see a travel agent because I do all of that through the individual airlines websites or travel site, it's always the opportunity for me to screw things up or screw up my taxes or screw up any of it. But by and large, the tools are so good and the tasks are simple enough that I can do these things as self-service. Probably not going to blow it that often. And I've saved myself a lot of hassles and a lot of money. So what the digitization in other industries has done is not only democratize the work, but really detether the individual from the institutions. If I had to find a travel agent now, I have no idea where I'd find one. I actually don't know if there are any still around. In healthcare, we're in this halfway world where we've begun to democratize things. We've begun to give patients much more information. You're going to see more and more, more tools out there that help patients, quote, diagnose themselves. But that's much more dangerous, obviously. Some of the times it'll be right. Some of the times it'll be wrong. It'll be impossible for patients to tell the difference. There will be legit companies that do this work. There will be charlatan companies that do this work. And a lot of the work is not going to completely detether the patient from a healthcare system or credentialed expert. It's going to triage and say to this patient, you know, it sounds like what you have here is just a viral infection. Don't worry about it. And it sounds like here, this might be a strep throat and you need to go and see a physician or a clinician to get your prescription for an antibiotic. And you're giving patients all this information, all, you know, they're seeing their chart, they're seeing their lab tests. And for the most part, you're not giving them help with how do you interpret that? So they've got to then get in touch with their healthcare system to figure out what it all means. 
So I think for the next five or 10 years, it's really an interesting set of problems. Not only how do digital systems help clinicians make better diagnoses, more accurate diagnoses, miss fewer things, but how do digital systems also help patients do that and appropriately draw the lines between times that patients can do that with the help of digital tools and times where doing that is actually dangerous. I think this is a wide open space and there's going to be a lot of interest in this as we give patients more information, democratize the process, but there's still a lot of stuff that patients can't and probably shouldn't do themselves. And so they still have to be pretty connected to the healthcare system in a way that we're not with financial services, we're not with retail, we're not with travel. So really tricky halfway period that I think is going to last for the next five or 10 years. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That, of course, is an area that I'm very interested in, sort of how the technology impacts patients and how it can help engage folks in the diagnostic process. But I do see a lot of that when I talk to patients, right, about, you know, some patients want access to everything and then some patients have difficulty making sense, right, because we don't even get a lot of education in, gosh, high school, college about our health so that our health literacy is a little bit higher. So oftentimes, you know, even myself, I use the patient portal and we get test results and have no idea yeah. what it means without context. Yeah. I have to say it would bug me a lot if the, you know, the seven years I spent in medical school and in residency <laughs> turned out to have no value at all and that a patient could interpret the results of a you know, high sodium level as easily as I can with the digital tool. At some point it might happen, but we're not there yet. And there's an illusion. And of course, the companies that are marketing this will hype it and say, oh yeah, you don't really need a doctor anymore with our tool. And, you know, some of the times that'll be right and some of the times that'll be wrong. And the problem in healthcare, if it's wrong, you didn't just get the wrong order where you went, you know, from Amazon, you can kill somebody. So we've got to be very careful. Definitely. So we did talk a little bit about the future of diagnosis and technology, but are there some other topics that you would like to cover during the larger session with the fellows? You know, my interest is so broad, it's really going to be up to <laughs> all of you. That's fair. You know, my career is sort of, you know, moderately successful dilettante. And so, you know, everything from the organization of care to politics, to policy, to digitization, to, you know, any kind of area in patient safety, I'm all I'm interested, know enough about to be dangerous, but uh, there are a lot of directions to go in. And then COVID obviously has raised its own set of issues. And then the sort of worldview I get from running a very large department in a big academic medical center, I think positions me to really understand how healthcare organizations are thinking all of this through and how the fact that diagnostic excellence did not get the attention it deserved from the patient safety community and from funders is actually mirrored in healthcare organizations. You know, as we look at where we need to invest in improvement, uh, there's relatively little investment in diagnosis because it's not something we can measure. We'll hear about a terrible case periodically, so we'll review it during a root cause analysis. But when you look at the scorecards and the dashboards that we have to sort of tell us how we're doing, there's really no element on those that says, here's how you're doing on diagnostic excellence. There's one on Clapsy, there's one on Falls, there's one on Decubitus, because those things we can measure easily. And so it all is a play within a play until we come up with better measures and until we come up with better strategies to address the problems, then in the world of the consumers of all this information, which are often healthcare delivery organizations, it's not high enough on their radar screen. Yeah, I find that, that a lot in the, the work I do focused on patients because it is so hard to measure diagnostic error. And then when we're talking about the patient perspective, I think it gets more complicated. 
how do we validate those experiences using the medical record and things like that? So it's labor intensive. So for the last and final question, what piece of advice would you give to the NAN scholars in diagnostic excellence? I do think that technology really is a pretty fertile ground, and I would be thinking about it more broadly than the traditional thinking, which is the computer kind of replacing the physician's brain. The last 10 years have been foundational in digital. It really is, can we replace the piece of paper and the three-ring binder as the way we collect and store information around and then replace the fax machine as the way we move information around with digital systems? And I think now we've done that by and large, but we have not even scratched the surface of now that the data are digital, how do you use that to make everything better, but in this area, particularly make diagnosis better? And some of that will be artificial intelligence and sifting through the data and coming up with smart observations of it looks like the patient has this disease or that disease. Some of it is going to be more operational. How does the fact that you can move data around from place A to place B seamlessly improve the probability that we won't miss something? And how do you measure that? Some of it is going to be this issue of democratization and engaging patients in being part of the diagnostic team with the help of computers while recognizing that to say patients is sort of silly because every patient is different and they'll have a different capacity to do this and a different interest in doing this. And so there will not be one size fits all here. But I think it really is, it's a very exciting era that I think the next 10 years will move us from kind of foundational digitization of healthcare to really real live digitization of healthcare and transformation of healthcare. And I think that provides lots of opportunities to take a new and fresh look at how digital systems, tools, new companies entering the field can help us transform the way we think about diagnosis, measure it, and improve it. I see it really as a very fertile area to focus on over the next decade. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for talking to me about your work today in diagnostic excellence. This has been really fun. Great. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. 